If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Man, what a crowd they had over there tonight at the student ministry. Every room's full in this church. We got small groups going. We've got marriage small groups going tonight. We got recovery small groups going tonight. We've got girls ministry impact going. We've got boys ministry, Royal Rangers. We've got student ministries happening in the student facility. A lot of fun things, a lot of activity tonight. Be sure to pray this weekend for our student ministries, our youth. They're going to their winter retreat. They're going to Goodlettsville to Camp Jackson. They leave. Uh, we got a big bus for them, big uh, bus, Greyhound bus, picks them all up here on Friday evening, Friday afternoon, and they bring them back on Sunday morning. So uh, they'll have their own speaker, their own worship team. Uh, they take and they have cooks. I mean, they. it's a fun weekend. Uh, and uh, if you have some youth, they might be still be able to get one or two in. Uh, if you have a grandchild or a child that their schedules change and would like to go, I guarantee it'll be, it'll be a fun weekend for them. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 32. And it says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That's in the New King James Version. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Um, there are two main themes that run through the Bible. Two themes. When, when it all boils down to it, uh, uh, all this theological stuff that you hear about and that I spent years in study for in seminary and, and, and working in, 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 in university, it all gets down, if you want to get the Bible down to two main themes, it's these two themes. Number one, our relationship with God. And number two, our relationship with our fellow man. Whether the tribulation's going to happen pre, mid, or post, it really doesn't matter. It's going to happen. When it's going to happen, I don't know. It, um, whether uh, some of this stuff, whether um, some of this stuff that occurred in the Old Testament, when it occurred and how it occurred, and did Jesus, did God make the world in six days, or was it 6,000 years, and... And all this stuff that people ask these questions about, that there seems to be no answer with specific evidence, really doesn't matter. All that really matters is your relationship with God and your relationship with your fellow man. That's really all that matters. And the Bible is very explicit about that. Notice what it says in this scripture, Matthew. Jesus said this. Jesus said, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second, verse 39, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Notice what Jesus says. He says the entire Word of God, 
The entire Word of God is based on these two themes. Your relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. The apostles repeat this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Turn to the epistle of John, 1 John, 1 John. The epistle of John, not the gospel of John, the epistle of John. Notice what John says. John says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Notice what he says. If a man says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother who he has, not, who he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. All right. Now, some of these I'm not going to put on the screen because some of you have gotten, you just don't even bring your Bible anymore. And I'm not going to do your work for you. I'll help you. I'm like the Holy Ghost, but I ain't going to do it for you. All right. So some of them I'm not going to put from randomly. There won't be one on the screen. And, and so you're looking there going, we know you didn't bring your Bible. All right. Notice, notice, let's read that again. I'm going to read it slow. Notice what it says. If a man says, I love God, and hates his brother. Remember our two themes? Our two themes is our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. Yet the, John says, if you say you love God, but can't get along with your brother, you are a liar. For he that loves not his brother who he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. So there's two themes that we need to constantly keep before our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. And here's what I've discovered is that in, in getting along with people, if you're going to get along with people, if you're going to get along with your fellow man, you and I must learn to deal with relational conflict. You're not going to be able to get along with people very long without dealing with relational conflict. Most of us do pretty good on our relationships until something goes wrong. And every relationship of any length of time, whether it's neighbors, whether it's friends, where it's husband and wives, where it's children, whether it's peers at work, where it's buddies who work out together, where if it's friends in the stadium who have uh, season tickets together, if you hang around one another long enough, eventually you're going to have some relational conflicts. And when conflicts occur, we can deal with it from a natural standpoint or we can deal with it from a Christ-like standpoint. From a natural standpoint, when a relational incident occurs that brings on conflict, we immediately want two things to happen. Okay? We want, we want, a, we want two things to happen. When, like if Bubba and I have a conflict, if Bubba and I have a falling out, uh, if we ever did, we never have, have we, Bob? In 10 years, we've never had a falling out. It's what he says. I go along with it so we don't fall out. I know where Bubba comes from. <laughs> he didn't come from my side of the tracks. He came away along the other side of the track. I don't want to mess with him. And if you don't want to mess with him, you definitely don't want to mess with his wife. She come from underneath the tracks. And anyway, 
But when we're in when we're in relational conflict, if there's somebody you can't get along with or somebody's done you wrong, there's two things. Every one of us go in these two areas. Number one, we want to identify the guilty party. Unless the guilty party is us. And number two, we want to find a way to get even or make that person pay for what they did to us. That's just, that's just natural. When we get in relational conflict, who's guilty? Who's guilty? In relational conflicts, there is normally right and wrong on both sides. How many of you understand that? There's two sides, normally, not all the ways, but normally there are two sides to every story. Our struggle is our human nature often overlooks what's wrong, what wrong we have done. And then we place the spotlight on what we perceive to be the unthinkable actions of the other person. Okay? I, I like to say it this way. We judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge the other person by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, I didn't mean nothing by it. I didn't mean nothing by it. I didn't mean, when I said that, I didn't mean nothing by that. We judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge everybody else by their actions. Well, you might not have meant nothing by it, but you did it. You said it, and it hurt, you know. So what we have to understand is that we normally, when we have conflict, it's just the natural thing to do. We take the spotlight off us and what we've done wrong, and we shine it brightly upon the person we're having conflict with. Let me give you... It's always been this way. Turn over to uh, Galatians chapter... or Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 3. It goes back to the book of beginnings. Adam and Eve. Notice what it says. When they, when they sinned, notice God said, Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Adam, the man, replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Notice, I'm not guilty. She's guilty. He's taking the spotlight off of his responsibility and putting it totally upon her. That's just the human nature. Then the Lord of God asked the woman, What have you done? Notice what she said. The serpent. The devil, it's not me. It's not me. The serpent, she replied, that's why I ate it. Adam wanted to blame Eve. Eve wanted to blame the serpent. And we, in dealing with conflict over the years and people who can't get along with one another, I, I seldom hear people say, I seldom hear people say, I'm at fault. In all the marital couples I've had to work with through the years, very rarely have I had a couple come in and one that's sat in the chair and say, it's me. It's me. Everybody always wants to say, it's her. It's him. I uh, spent some time on the phone today with a pastor who's under a lot of fire. Uh, he, uh, this past Sunday, there was a baby crying in his sanctuary, and uh, he handled it wrong. It upset him. He, he got frustrated because the, uh, the mama wouldn't take the baby out. And he said some things he shouldn't have said, and they were live streaming. 
and it went viral. And now literally thousands of people are calling him names and calling for his head. And so I, and he's a friend of mine. So I called him just to encourage him today and tell him, I love you. You're stupid, but I love you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he's going to get through it because this is what he said. I messed up, Pastor. I messed up. I, I take full responsibility. I, I let it get under my skin. It wasn't the mama's fault. It wasn't the baby's fault. I just messed up. And you know, he's going to get through that. Because, see, he takes responsibility. That's not the natural thing we do. Our flesh wants to hide our responsibility and cast the blame on somebody else. That's usually the first thing. Who's guilty? And it's never me. When, we're in, when we've got a relationship problem, when we have a friendship that breaks up, then when we have a marriage that's on the rocks, the first thing we ask is who's guilty and it's never me. It's always the other person. The second thing we want to do when we have relational problems is we want to get even. We want to get even. Finding a way to get even usually preoccupies us after an offense has come. And we have our special way of getting even. Number one, demonstrative revenge. Demonstrative revenge. Outburst of anger. Uh, telling others. Gossiping. Actions to hurt the person who did you wrong back. That's a demonstrative way of getting revenge. But then, here's the one I usually do. Now, Amanda's that number one. She's number one. That's why I walk softly around her. She'll cut you. She might be beautiful and blonde, and, and all, but I'm going to tell you, you make her mad, she'll cut you. She's like Islam, cutting the head off a crease. I mean, she'll cut you. I'm number two, silent but deadly. I'll, ju I'll just forget you. Forget you. I'll go play in somebody else's sandbox. I, I, but both of them are doing the same thing. We're getting people back who have injured us, who have hurt us, who have wronged us. One, we're demonstrative, we're expressive, we are doing actions to try to bring hurt and injury to the person who's hurt us. And the other is, we just avoid them. We write them off. We, we reject them and neglect them. Regardless of how we try to get even, one thing is universal. Once we have been wronged, there is a cry within us for justice. Once you and I have been wronged, it's just in us. It's been put in us for justice since the day we were born. You don't have to work that up. You don't have to learn that. It's just in you. How many times have you seen on the news or on the media of some child or some animal that's inhumanely treated? There's something in you wants to bring justice to that situation. It's just in you to bring justice to that situation. Did you know that's a biblical thing? Look at Leviticus chapter 24. Let's go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 24. Look at Leviticus chapter 24. Notice what God said under the law. Anyone who injures another person, 
must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. This is under the Old Testament. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, I don't understand that one. Well, I do. If you get in a fight and hit somebody in the mouth, knock their tooth out, the Bible says under the Old Testament, you had to stand there and let them knock your tooth out. An eye for an eye, a fracture. If they broke, if you broke their arm, they get to sit there and break your arm. Now, that works pretty good unless you're the guilty party. Okay? And I, this is where we get this old saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's scriptural. This is where it comes from. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. That was the Old Testament law. That's how justice was demonstrated. That's how a person's cry for justice was settled. You did. You steal from me, I'm taking from you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back the same way. It's my right to do that, and you've got to take the, stand there and take it. That was the law, and that settled the cry for justice. But then Jesus comes along in the New Testament, and he introduces a whole new set of rules for justice. Okay? Let, let me show it to you. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38. Jesus talks about that verse in, in Leviticus 24. Listen to what he says. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I mean, Jesus is quoting uh, Moses in Leviticus, the law. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, all I can say is thank God for the Holy Ghost, the helper. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Verse 43. Give, uh, you have heard the law that says, Matthew 5, 38, verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Verse 46, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends... How are you different from anyone else? Even pagans or heathens, ungodly people, do that. But you are to be perfect or mature as even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The law said this cry for justice, for it to be demanded, said this, If Wayne does me wrong and hurts me, my cry for justice before it can ever be settled is I get to do the same thing to him. And he's got to stand there and take it. 
That's what the law, and, and it took place. Even today, in a lot of third world countries, if somebody steals, they'll take that person, if they catch them, they'll take that person and cut their hand off in public. Cut their hand off in public. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that's, that's the Old Testament cry for justice, so that, so that the unjust would be settled. And every one of us, when people do us wrong in a relationship, there is that cry. I want to know who, who, who's guilty, and it's never me, so it's got to be you. And number two, I, you, need to, you need to settle this cry I have inside of me for justice. And if we'd have been living under the law, whatever you did to me, I have the right to do to you. But then Jesus comes around, and he said, no, no, we're not doing that no more. That's not the way it works anymore. Okay? Now, here's the question. With this cry inside of us for justice, how in the world do we fulfill what Jesus said to do? Because I'll be honest with you. I'll just be as transparent with you as I can. When somebody does my kids wrong, I want to hurt them. Pastor, really? Yeah, I want to hurt them. Well, you the pastor. Yeah, I'm a pastor that wants to hurt them. Okay? And you know what I'm talking about. Somebody does your child wrong. Now, you can do me wrong. It hurts, and I'll just leave you alone. I'll walk away from you and never have nothing to do with you again. But you do my kid wrong. Now, now we, we, we're talking different here now. You know, I'm going to get me some flesh on that. And Jesus said, that's not the way you handle it. That's that cry for justice that's inside of us. Now, how do we get justice... Because, see, that cry for justice has to be settled. It'll never go away. That's the reason so many couples today who have gotten divorced because of betrayal or wounds or things that were said or things that were done, and that wound is never healed. Even though the couple are not together anymore, the wound is never healed. And that person lives with that wound forever because that cry for justice is never settled. It's never settled. So how can we live life in the fullness of joy and peace when we've got this cry inside of us for justice to be settled and we can't get them back? How do you do it? How do you do it? That's what Ephesians talks about. When Ephesians said, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Remember, in relational conflict, there's a natural way to resolution. And there is a Christ-like way to resolution. Here's something that we must understand. Jesus never denied, neglected, or didn't require justice for wrongdoing. When he said, turn the other cheek, when he said, when they take your shirt, give them your coat also, he's not saying let people run over you. And he's not saying what they did doesn't really matter. And he's not saying you don't have to 
desire justice. He says the way you get justice today is different than the way they did in the Old Testament. God demanded justice. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is true. God is faithful. He's never sinned. He's never made a mistake. But he demands justice. You know this scripture. If you was raised Baptist, you really know this scripture. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice God's not neglecting people's failures. He's not denying it. He's not saying it never happened. He says everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then Romans chapter 6, verse 23 the Roman road, it says this, For the wages of sin is, if you remember, the wages of sin is what? Death. Notice God didn't say, well, sin, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it, we won't think about it, we won't talk about it. Don't worry about it, it's no big deal. No, God says, the wages of sin is death. So God demands justice for injustice. God demands it. And if God demands it, it's okay for us to have that cry for justice, for injustice. But God introduced a radical payment plan. It was called the principle of substitution. See, when death was required from us for our sin, our failure, our wrong... For the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God demanded justice to be paid. But instead of God taking his pound of flesh out of us, he introduced the principle of substitution. God asked Jesus to be our substitute. On the cross, Jesus was crucified for our sins. He became the substitute. The judgment was settled and paid, not by us, the guilty party, but by Jesus. God didn't say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't think a thing about it. It ain't no big deal. There's no penalty for sin anymore. We're living in the day of grace. There's no penalty of sin anymore. God never said that. God said, somebody's going to pay. Justice must be settled. Justice must be satisfied. <clears throat> But I'm not going to require it of you. I'm going to require it of my son, Jesus Christ. See, that's the miracle of the gospel. That's the miracle of the gospel. I, uh, I was standing at the, in the courtroom in uh, Cookville, Tennessee, many years ago. And beside me was a young man that I had uh, helped rescue... His, his daddy was a Baptist preacher, and uh, he'd gotten in high school, gotten involved in drugs and alcohol. And uh, he'd just gotten all kind of trouble, all kind of trouble. And he'd, his mama started, his dad retired, his mama started coming to our church, and I st she got filled with the Spirit of God and started working on him and witnessing to him. And he'd do good for a couple of days and fall back into it. And he'd gone through a season of really getting in a lot of trouble. And he had stolen some things, wrecked some cars. He got arrested. And uh, they were getting ready to, to put it to him. 
And he came to see me and said, Pastor, would, would you go to court with me? And I said, I'll be happy to go to court with you. And uh, so I went to court with him. We stood before the judge. The judge was a Baptist minister, Bill Baird Griffith, who I knew. He looked at me. Hey, Pastor. I, I judge, Your Honor, how are you doing? He looked at his docket. He said, so we're not here for you today. I said, no, sir, we're not here for me today. And then he looked at the young man, and he knew the young man's daddy. He read the whole thing. There was four or five charges, and and he asked uh, he asked him. He said, uh, "And how do you plead?" And the young man said, "I plead guilty." And the judge says uh, and started listing all the things that he was guilty of and that he pleaded guilty, made understood that he pled guilty. He says, and I'm going to sentence you. And the sentence was a year or something in jail, several thousand dollars worth of fines. And he read them off, and I could hear Mom weeping in the background because she wasn't going to see her son for, for a year. And the boy has no way of paying. You know, you get in that system. Uh, some of you know. You get in that system, and it's hard to get out of it. And uh, and the judge uh, looks at him and says, Son, can you pay your fines today? He said, No, sir, I can't pay. Several thousand dollars. And uh, uh, the judge looks at me, and he says, Young man, your daddy was a Baptist minister. And he preached the gospel of the substitution of Jesus Christ for our sins. I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to show you that in action. I'm going to pay your fines for you. And the judge, right there on the bench, wrote a check for his fines. And he says, I'm going to commute your time that you got to go to jail to probation, and you have to show up at this church every week and report in, and da 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 da. And the whole courtroom is a gasp. You can understand. The next guy, we're so moved, we just go sit down, and I'm sure the next guy's thinking, "Man, I'm going to get a free pass." <laughs> they carried him back to the court jailhouse. He didn't get nothing. Today, that young man is pastor of the largest church in uh, Putnam County, a church of over 3,500 people today, because he experienced the substitution work of Christ. Do you know, every time you and I miss it, every time you and I sin, every time we fail, death is what's required. But God settled that cry for justice that was in the heart of God and that he puts in us by putting that punishment upon Jesus Christ. Somebody else paid for our sin. Somebody else paid for our wrong. It's called the principle of, just, of substitution. And our challenge is, many of us have been injured and payback is not possible. It was an emotional injury, a verbal injury, a break in a commitment, or a marriage vow. Now, there cries from within us a plea for justice. 
but there's no way the situation can be made whole or right. So we carry this wound with which there is seemingly no healing. Often that injury becomes our badge or our excuse for depression. It becomes, we become victims because of it, and it prohibits us of our future destiny. And you talk to people, well, I am this way because of what they did to me, or what I went through, or the way I was raised. Their injury, their wounds, since they can't get justice, and since they can't fix it, it becomes their reason for being a victim. It becomes their excuse for their depression. It becomes their badge that they live with the rest of their life. And the only way to get rid of it, especially there are people that come into our life that do us wrong and they die. Some of you have got people that have done you wrong. They're no longer living. They can't fix it. How do you get justice for that? They're gone. I've got people that have done me wrong. They've, they've moved away and then later died. How do you fix that? How do you get them to repent? How do you get them to tell you they're sorry? How do you get them to act in a contritious way that would let you know, well, at least that makes me feel better, that they're sorry for what they did? I've had people do me wrong and, and spit in my face and then they go off, and I'm thinking, maybe the Lord will speak to their heart, and one day they'll come back and tell me they were sorry, but then they die. So you can never, it never, it never closes. You never get closure. You've got this open wound. So how in the world do I go on? How can I get over it? How can this cry for justice ever be settled? Because they can't come back and do it and repent. Some of you are mad at your folks because the way they treated you, the way they raised you, now they're dead. And they can't come back and tell you they messed up and they're sorry and they can't make it right. So how do you and I get past this? How do we do it? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Notice this. Forgiving, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. God has forgiven us because the penalty was paid by Jesus on the cross. God required payment, so Jesus became our substitute. Now listen, God required payment, so Jesus became our substitute. We couldn't pay it. We couldn't make it right. So God required Jesus to become our substitute. Now, now, God tells us to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. In our relational conflicts, where there has been injury and no repentance or no hope for repentance, we can only forgive by regarding Jesus as paying the price for the sin against us. Do you hear me? 
I've had people that have done me wrong and never came back and told me they were sorry. I've had people steal from me. Steal money from me. And they never come back and told me they were sorry. They never repaid it. And they died. Now how can I get that how can I get that settled? How that's cry for justice. Do I spend the rest of my life not believing in people and being compassionate for people because of what they did for me to me? Well, I'm not going to trust anybody else again. I'm never going to trust another human being. In other words, this wound, this cry for justice never got settled, so I'm going to hold it against humanity for the rest of my life. That's a terrible way to live. That's a terrible way. So how do you settle? How do you settle it? How does it, this cry for justice become settled? We can only forgive by regarding Jesus as paying the price for the sin against us. Jesus paid for their sin against me, just like he paid for my sin against them. Everybody with me? We must see Jesus whipped and hanging on a cross for the sins that people have committed against us as well as those they have committed against God. We must allow what Jesus did on the cross to satisfy our sense of justice. Then we must turn and release our offenders. Just as forgiveness is offered to us based on what Jesus did on the cross, we must offer forgiveness to others on the same basis. We cannot base our willingness to forgive on what the offenders do in response to us. If Bubba did me wrong and moved away and we never talked again, I've got to forgive Bubba, not because Bubba came back and asked for forgiveness. I've got to forgive him because Jesus paid the price for Bubba's sins and that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. Well, I'll forgive them if they'll tell me they're sorry. They won't tell me they're sorry. I'm not going to forgive them. Then you're the prisoner. They're not. You're the prisoner. They're not. That's no way to live. Well, they're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. They shouldn't be able to get away with it. They did wrong. They need to pay. Jesus paid it for them. And that's got to be good enough for you. That's got to be good enough. You say, well, I struggle with that. I struggle with that. Well, I understand that. Listen, if Jesus' sacrifice was enough to satisfy the demands for justice within God, why wouldn't it be enough to satisfy the demands of justice within us for the offenses of others toward us? Let me repeat that. If Jesus' sacrifice was enough to satisfy the demands of justice within God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was enough to satisfy that. Then why wouldn't it be enough to satisfy the demands of justice within us for the offenses of others toward us? Isn't it a slap in God's face for us to demand more than God himself demanded? 
Must we make the person who offended us suffer before we are satisfied? Jesus is crying out, blame me, let them go. I paid the price for their sin. Here's one, here's one passage of Scripture, and we'll close, and we'll pick this up next week. Only so much forgiveness you can take in one, one week. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's 490. Now, if you read it in the Koine Greek, it's literally, when I read it in the original text, it's in the, it's in the continuous tense. And literally, he's talking about something that not just happens one time, or not just happens 490 times. It's talking about something that happens continually. So how many times, how, how, notice what he says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times. What he's talking about today, Wednesday, if Wayne did me wrong today, I need to forgive him 490 times today. And then if he does me wrong tomorrow, I need to forgive him 400. It's a continual thing. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. Forgave the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a lot less than what he owed. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. According to the law, he could do that. So his fellow servant fell down in his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Exactly what he said. But he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Um, When I don't forgive, uh, I open myself up to the torturers. And you see this. You see it. You deal with people all the time. 
you hadn't known them five minutes and they'll start telling you something that happened 15 years ago and who did them wrong and who cheated them and who didn't treat them right and who betrayed them and all this kind of stuff. It starts spewing out. They're tortured. They're tortured with it. It's on their mind. It consumes everything about them. When you say, well, how do you get rid of that? How do you, how do you get rid of it? It eats at me. It eats at me every day. And I understand that. It eats at you every day. It's on your mind every day. Every time you see them, every time somebody mentions their name, it's like a replay, a rehearsal of what they did to you. How do you get rid of that, Pastor? How do you get rid of that? The way you get rid of it is every time that starts to replay their offense, their injury, what they did to you, the wrong they did to you, every time it starts to replay that in your mind, you intentionally see Christ hanging on the cross for your sin. It's a mind game. It's a mind game. How many of you have said, I forgive a person, and then you see them a month later, and all those feelings come back up? And then the devil's sitting on your shoulder. Well, you didn't forgive him. You didn't forgive him. If you forgive him, you wouldn't felt that way. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you'd forgive, that's not true. It's a mind game. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision of our will. In fact, next Wednesday night, I'll give you a list of things to put on your refrigerator and tell you what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Okay? But every time you have a replay, a rehearsal of that wound, that offense, that injury, you must be able to put Christ as the substitute for them. That's what Ephesians 4 said. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And it's just a matter of intentionally telling yourself every day and every time you think about it and every time the memory comes back, you, Jesus paid the price for their sin, I forgive them. Jesus paid the price for their sin, I forgive them. You see them, Jesus paid the price for their sin, and I forgive them. You think about it, somebody mentions their name, Jesus paid the price for their sin, and I forgive them. That's enough for me, it satisfies me. If it satisfies God, satisfies me and you intentionally have to do it it's not easy it's not fun sometimes you have to do it over and 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 over 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 sometimes you have to do it in the morning sometimes you have to do it at night sometimes you wake up in the middle of night thinking about it you have to do it does anybody know what i'm talking about see if not you'll be tortured Remember what Jesus said? You used to hear it done this way, an eye for an eye and two for two. Jesus said, no, 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 no. We're changing it. You forgive. And here's how you do it. I paid the price for your sin. I paid the price for their sin. But I not only paid the price for their sin against me, I paid the price for their sin against you.